we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show, and we've got him back. I can't believe we got him back, and I got him back so quickly. So we're totally honored to have Dr. Leonard Jeffries back with us today. As you know, he is a political scientist, historian, educator, and pan-Africanist. Uh, he is a founding director and former vice president and president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization, and is a former president uh, of the African Heritage Association. He has also been appointed the International Executive Director of the Organization of Afro-American Unity uh, that was founded in 1964 by Malcolm X. And uh, he's back with us today to talk a little bit more about copies of film. Uh, but we're also going to talk about the Jewish phenomenon that he incurred uh, early in his career, as well as his feelings on white people. Welcome back, Dr. Leonard Jeffries. Well, certainly a pleasure. Always a pleasure to try to engage our people and others in searching for the truth. And so that's one of the important things that uh, being a professor allows you uh, to do. So I am glad to be a part of the, the program that you put together. Thank you, sir. Um, before we get started, I know that uh, uh, recently we lost a, uh, you, you lost a good friend, we lost a social icon, and that was Dick Gregory. Um, and you shared some really wonderful stories with me about Dick Gregory and the impact he's made in your family. Uh, can you share that? Share some of that story with us and how he entrusted you with uh, actually his children, taking them to uh, Africa. Well, certainly, uh, this is correct to take time out to honor our great brother who joined the ancestors most recently. And I was blessed to have a special relationship with him and his oldest children and his partner for life, uh, Lillian uh, Gregory, so that uh, it is a great loss, but all of us are going to pass through this passage. And um, and the judgment, the Mahatian in the Nile Valley, the scale of of weighing your heart against the feather of truth, uh, which is a tradition from the Nile Valley that found its way into modern society. So the Supreme Court of the United States has a scale. And when you trace its roots, it goes back to what the Nile Valley Africans uh, used as a symbol of judging whether someone lived a correct and decent life. Mm. And if the feather of truth outweighed the the negative, then that person is certainly celebrated and welcomed into the ancestral realm and living for eternity. And so having known uh, Dick Gregory for so many years, almost 50 years, and having had a very close relationship uh, with him at many, in many instances and circumstances, I, I know that his heart weighs favorably on the Mahatian scale. And so he joins a whole host of ancestors. Most recently, leaving us was a great queen mother sister. And um, she was one of the preeminent persons uh, in our our experience. And that was Dr. Francis Cresswelding, mm-hmm. MD. And um, so she also had a close relationship with, with Dick Gregory. They were both concentrated uh, the last part of their uh, life in Washington, D.C. And uh, so that uh, we lost her, and uh, but it was a glorious 
presence that she had, and certainly the Mahatmian scale weighs heavily in her favor. But I have to mention that I met, uh, well, to be very frank, I met the, the spirit and the substance and struggle of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing in 1967 in my hometown, North New Jersey, at the Black Power Conference. I had just come back from Africa, my wife and I, after being in Africa for two years doing my PhD research, and I met this fantastic spirit when she challenged the Black uh, Power Conference uh, to struggle for the people in Newark that had been arrested during the Newark uh, Rebellion. So 67 was our great sister, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. 68 was going to Los Angeles to struggle with the African Studies Association. And out of that struggle with, with Dr. Clark leading us, we produced the African Heritage Studies Association. We decided to step out on our own. And so in that time, I also had a chance to go to Mexico City for the Olympics and meet John Carlos. And in 1969, that's when I went to set up the Black Studies Department in San Jose State College. And in the fall of 69, in the same couple of weeks, I met Dick Gregory, Alex Haley, Ron Dellums, and had John Carlos in my classes along with my wife's classes at San Jose. So talk about the interrelationship of struggle and interrelationship of spirit and interrelationship of personalities. It really has me saying very clearly that we are an African family and we have developed a collective mission to restore Africanness to its greatness. And we have challenged the negativity that has Africans pushed to the margin of human existence or by some people not even being human. And so our great explosion of information over these last many years has been to establish, meaning the last six or seven uh, decades, the last 60 or 70 years, we've established clearly that African people are the first and foremost human presence on the planet. And African people raised humanity to its highest level. Mm-hmm. And African people, in point of fact, if there's a chosen people, African people are just that. And so to see Dick Gregory struggling using the comedic formula he had for his social activism and his waking our people's consciousness up, to see Dr. Frances Cress-Welsing using her medical expertise in the psychology of the mind uh, to wake us up, to see an athlete, premier athlete, John Carlos with his partner, Tommy Smith, standing before the world in 1968 at the Olympics and raising a black power fist, Uh a statement that the athletics may be important, but struggle is much more important than the physical competition in athletics. And so, and then also at that same period of time, we met Ron Dellums as a young active political leader of the Bay Area who was destined to become Congressman Ron Dellums. And of course, to have Alex Haley working on this enormous project of linking us to the African continent, linking us to to a village in Africa uh, through his family's uh, 
the research on his family. And so at that time, when we met in 69, by 1970, he came again to San Jose, and we started talking about a relationship. By 1971, I was able to help him by setting up a the Alex Haley uh, planned and projected Kente Library Project of Black Family History. Mm. And in 72, we were able to get a half a million dollars from the Carnegie Corporation to help Alex Haley fulfill his great uh, project. And for seven years, I was his closest associate in terms of research and study. And I was as close to him or even closer than his own biological brothers. Uh, he had George and uh, his, his youngest brother, who was an engineer architect, and George, uh, who was a, uh, a lawyer, uh, working for the, eventually for the Nixon uh, government. But Alex and I partnered, uh, Dick Gregory and I partnered, John Carlos and I partnered, and Ron Dellums and I partnered. That was 68, 69, and it still resonates with me. You're talking about almost 50 years ago. Wow. And then to have Dick Gregory read the spirit of myself and my wife as we pull together this phenomenal Black Studies program in 1969, because for the year, 10 years before, in the 60s, we had been involved intimately with Africa, my wife and I. She first went in 1960 and spent the summer in Africa uh, working with African students in Nigeria, building a school and then traveling around uh, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I was in Europe studying international affairs at that time in French and at the same time, um, learning uh, 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 Russian and international affairs, and at the same time meeting Africans. And the greatest one I met was Dr. Shekanta Jup, mm-hmm. and he was the greatest of our African leaders in terms of, for me and others, we uh, name it and claim it, and we name Shekanta Jup as the Imhotep of our times. And with this great awakening of information and this renaissance of African peoples and what I'm calling the, the cha- a turning point of history, at the center of it is the life and times and struggle and achievement of Dr. Shek Anta Jup, a Senegalese scholar of enormous proportion who was a scientist, a linguist, a historian. He was a political leader. He was a Pan-Africanist. And most of all, he was a humble spirit moving to us to personally know these folks and know them as great people with great missions and enormous contributions, but to know them as humble and gentle spirits. In spite of all the bluster of, of uh, uh, Richard Gregory, affectionately called Dick, uh, he was a, a quiet spirit. Um, he had a special personal mission to understand the universe and to transform people, even the lowest, uh, the lowly ones of us. And he also related to the most active and and most serious ones of us. And he also related to those in the suites as well as those in the streets. Well, Shekhanta Diop was that on an international scale. He related to the villages in Africa. He related to the students in Africa. He related to the downtrodden. He had a very strong 
uh, progressive political uh, 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 program uh, for himself. So he was Pan-Africanist. He was a, um, a Marxist-Leninist. He was a, a nationalist. Uh, he was a father, uh, a husband, a partner uh, to the people he worked with. When you read his great work, Civilization of Barbarism, which I attempted to translate, and I finally got a grant to help get it translated from French to English, his dedication is to the great brother Alien Diop. And this great brother Alien Diop uh, was his mentor. Now, he is a great one, one of our greatest ones, and he had a family that mentored him. And the family was Madame Diop and her husband, Alion, and they, the Diops, uh, Alion and Madame Diop set up this great African center in Paris, which was a printing establishment. It was a cultural gathering. Uh, it was where Africans could try to work through all of this sickness that had been put out in terms of African people and all the negativity that had been fostered by other peoples who wanted to crush the Africans. So here's the great book that is the victory, the victory in terms of intellectual warfare, the victory in terms of the cultural wars, the victory in terms of who stands at the head of the human family. This is Civilization of Barbarism, an Authentic Anthropology, Sheck, C-H-E-I-K-H, Middle name Anta, A N T A, and family name Jup, D I O P. And it, uh, in the dedication, when it was published in French, and I did several uh, translations, uh, several interpretations uh, mm-hmm. of the work, and uh, Van Sertema published uh, several key articles in his book, The Journal of African Civilization, in, in 1981. And finally, in uh, uh, several years later, we were able to get the book uh, published in in uh, in English, and I was able to get a grant from Brother Yalingi um, and Gemi so that he could uh, use his skills um, and his understanding of our history to, to complete the translation. So that was ninety one. Ninety one was the period when I was attacked as the worst person in the history of the world who had all these crazy ideas about African peoples, who had all these crazy analysis about the European peoples and others, and the biggest attack ever waged against an individual in the modern world was thrown at me in 1991. But that's when this great book came out, and I'm reading the dedication of it. Now, this is a scientist, a pan-Africanist, a Marxist-Leninist, one who was conceiving of African leadership, and and uh, this is how he dedicated the book. Talk about African humanity. I dedicate this book to the memory of Alion Jup, who died on the battlefield of African culture. Alion, you knew what you came to do on this earth, a life entirely dedicated to others, nothing for yourself, everything for others, a heart filled with goodness and generosity, a soul steeped in nobility, a spirit always supreme, simplicity personified, 
explanation point. Did it emerge, the beginning force of the universe, want to provide us with an example, an ideal of perfection by calling you into existence? Alas, the terrestrial community to which you knew how to convey better than anyone else the message of human truthfulness that sprang from the inner depths of your being was denied of you too soon, was deprived of you too soon. But the remembrance of you will never er be erased from the memory of African peoples to whom you dedicated your life. That is why I'm dedicating this book to your memory in witness of a brotherly friendship that is stronger than time. Now, I met Henri de Sécole near the Collège de France, the, uh, this brother that he's referring to, and his wife. And then they introduced me to Shekhan to Dieppe. And that was in 1959-60 in Europe. Wow. I had not been to Africa yet, but I was meeting Africans. And within the next year, I was in Africa in 61, 62, 63, 64. I got my, uh, uh, a grant for my PhD, 65, 66. We went to live in Africa uh, to do that research. And then 67, we came back. And then 68, 69, we got involved in the Black Studies Movement. But to know these people personally and to feel what Sheikh Anta Diop is saying about his mentor, Ali Diop, those are words that we can apply to Sheikh Anta Diop himself. Sure, absolutely. Those are the words we can apply, apply to Dr. John Henry Clark himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the words that we can apply to Dr. Frances Cress Welsing herself. See, these are the noble people and who Dr. stepped and into Dr. This. Leonard Jeffries as well. Well, I'm in the footsteps, and I hope that as I finish my mission, it th these are the people that I know are important. I'm not worried about the people who have a lot of money, who have a lot, a lot of power that they misuse, who have a lot of publicity. Uh, I'm worried about these people who have a mission and they have a chance to live out that mission uh, for many years. Many of us get the mission, but our time is short. For example, using the, the, the running athletic and interesting enough, Gregory, who used to be overweight and got into a health thing, he became an a long-time marathon, uh, marathon runner. Mm -hmm. So Gregory fits into this idiom that I'm going to refer to. Some people were brought here with a, a plan to be a part of the master plan, and they were 100-yard dashers. And they did that as best anyone else could. And so someone who had only... 10 or 12 or 13 years to do his thing after he was born into a positive family in terms of, of being conscious. I'm talking about el Haj Malik, El-Shabazz, Malcolm X, Omawali, that his father was a Garveyite coming up from America. His mother was a Garveyite coming up from the Caribbean. 
So he had a strong foundation. But then when the father was killed, the mother was institutionalized, then he slipped and, and he went right into a period of negativity. But then once he had the experience inside, in the jail, he transformed himself. Life is changed, transformation, rebirth, resurrection. And no greater example do we have uh, than El Hazmalik El Shabazz Malcolm X, who I did not know personally, but became a part of his family in every way. His wife, widow, uh, Dr. Betty Shabazz, became one of our partners in struggle and a person we work close with, especially since I worked so close with Alex Haley. And that meant I was an intermediary between her and Alex Haley to get support for her family, those girls that she raised and the young ladies that she raised who became serious women, young queens. Uh, I've been close to three or four of them. So that uh, the family relationship with Malcolm X is very important, but I describe him as one of the supreme 100-yard dashes. Within that 10 to 12 year, he he had, he transformed our consciousness. He he went to Mecca, went all over Africa, and then and then decided that we needed to have an organization of our world community similar to the African organizing, the Africans organizing our larger world community. And Haile Selassie, the great one of the struggle of, of our people, Haile Selassie, when the new African nations were exploding on the scene in the 50s and 60s, and they needed an organizational structure, Haile Selassie said, I'm welcoming African leaders to Ethiopia, one of our great ancient lands, and we can create a new organization of unity and base it in the highlands of Ethiopia. So Addis Ababa became the capital of the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, which was organized in May 1963. And in May 1963, I was running around Africa. I was even in Ethiopia and Nigeria in 64, 65. And ironically, or interesting enough, at the time that Malcolm was moving throughout West Africa and Central Africa, I was based in Ghana, moving throughout uh, West Africa and Central Africa. And that was in 1964. And this great 100-yard dash of Malcolm X, with the little time he had before he was taken from us, he decided that if the Africans on the continent can organize their nations into a unity formulation, then the Africans out of Africa need to organize themselves into a unity formulation. So he formed as a counterbalance to the Organization of African Unity, which to date has 55 plus African nations in it. He organized the OAAU, the Organization of African American Unity, pushing in that 100-yard dash that he had to do his work, pushing us into a global consciousness that we're more than Africans fighting for space in America with a civil rights movement. We're more than Africa fighting to show white folks we can achieve like they can, and so we're in their uh, superstructure. We're more than Africans who are struggling in the military uh, and helping America win its wars. He wanted us to say there's a higher calling 
that we have to find a unity among the various components of Black America and the Caribbean and South America and Central America, and we need to have a unity. So he called for the organization of African Amer- Afro-American unity to parallel the, the unity in on the continent. So we have to look at these brothers and sisters and not how much gold that they had in the bank or what kind of big mansions or big cars did they move around in or live in, but what did they do with the time they had? And if Malcolm was the 100-yard dasher, the supreme one, then a 220 runner was Dr. Martin Luther King, who came into the picture as a, a young man being prepared to leave, lead the ministry in a, in a middle-class church uh, in uh, Montgomery, uh, but then circumstance pushed him to achieve greatness. And uh, he responded to the circumstance. And what was the circumstance? The struggle in Montgomery for African-American dignity and ability to deal with this system of discrimination and this continuation of the dehumanization of African peoples. And, and our sister sitting on the bus uh, became a symbol of, of the strategies we could use to shake the system and, and allow it to open up so that we can have our place. And while she, our great sister, uh, sat on the bus and the Montgomery bus boycott followed, in which the community for 381 days in unity walked and had carpools and brought that bus company down. So the Southern world was being, uh, it was beginning to quake and shake with a new consciousness and the Montgomery bus boycott represents that. But out of Chicago came a young spirit who went down to Miss, to Money, Mississippi to visit his grandfather. And while he was there, supposedly he looked at a white woman. And as a result, the white Klan terrorist group decided to eliminate him. And so you had the death of this young man Emmett Till, who was from Chicago and had gone down to visit relatives, grandfather, and then wound up dead. His mother decided, they destroyed my baby and I want the world to see it. And then before the Montgomery bus boycott, you had the funeral in Chicago of Emmett Till. And all of us were riveted by, we, we may not have been in Chicago, but she wanted them, don't clean up his face. Don't let them see what they did to my baby. And that photo of what happened to this young man riveted throughout the black community. I was a young man, was in 1955. I was um, less than, I was 18. And so I could feel it and, and it put a strength in me to continue to resist and to fight and have no fear and be ready to die. So here you had the Montgomery bus boycott. Here you had Emmett Till. And here King, instead of having a nice quiet ministry, he was in the middle of the whirlwind of Marcus Messiah Garvey coming through the black community, waking our people up. And King met the challenge, marching and forcing issues and eventually he gave his life 
And he said, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. Uh-huh. But he knew we were going to be moving because he was a part of the runners who passing the torch on. He was the 220 runner. And then with only about 15 or 16 years, really, in real time, he, he was murdered uh, by this system uh, when he was 39. Malcolm was 39. So you have to say what time you have, you need to use to the best of your ability to contribute to this ongoing struggle of our people to restore our Africanness and move move, it, move African people to even greater uh, roles in world history. And so you got the 100-yard dashes, you got the 220, you got the 440, you got uh, others who have uh, long-distance runners. And, and Dick Gregory, he left us at 84, he was a long-distance runner. Mm-hmm. And those who were the serious long distance runners were people like Dr. John Henry Clark. He was 86 or 87. Dr. Ben left us at 80, 98. Uh, Chancellor Williams left us around 99. John Jackson. Uh, these are brothers who devoted their life to trying to wake up people up, and they left their contributions in terms of their life, their writings their mission, their purpose, their families. All of them were connected to African families and all of them were connected to the consciousness raising for African youth. And all of them had partners, either their wives or associates um, that helped them put in place that balance between the male and the female principle. So uh, we, Dick is in that, uh, in that crowd, in that number. Now you, and, uh, you you had your daughters, uh, uh, or his daughters rather. Uh, he instructed you to take them to Africa, is that right? Well, that uh, incident and what Dick did at that time, uh, then, and I hope as my wife and I write our story, uh, we can properly uh, acknowledge meeting him in the fall of '69 at San Jose because he came. He was. Uh, brought to the school as a visiting scholar. So every month he came a couple of times a month. And so um, when we met him and we already had, my wife had a 10-year African experience. I had a 10-year African experience. So we were ready to put in place not just the normal black studies of studying the African-Americans. We were, we were ready to put in place a pan-African African studies. And so we did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Within that first semester, we got the students excited about going to Africa. But I said, you just don't want to go to Africa. You need to link Africa with Black America. So we set up an institute for a month studying Black America, traveling throughout Black America from coast to coast, and then flying to Africa, and for a month moving throughout Africa. Now, when we came up with this idea in the fall of 69, Students were excited. Community leaders, including ministers, were excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, IBM technicians who were in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, they were excited. So we took 16 students and 15 uh, plus community uh, people, including a lawyer in a wheelchair, and somehow the Dick Gregory and his wife Lillian read the spirit of my wife and I, and they 
asked us if we would take his oldest daughters, Lynn and Michelle, eight and 11 years old, whether we would take them with us on this African Afro-American odyssey. Now, when you realize these are his two oldest children now, mm-hmm. he hasn't been to Africa. Lillian hasn't been to Africa. And I think Lillian was a little hesitant, but he convinced her and they both agreed, let these youngsters go with the Jeffries. Now that's the greatest tribute you can have. Mm-hmm. Somebody giving you their most precious responsibility, their two oldest children, girl children, and we trust you to take them. And he said their children were bothering him. They wanted to go to Disneyland. And he said, okay, I got a proposition. And this is Dick for years. is always talking about this. Whenever he, he saw me in the audience, he said, the proposition was, we'll let you go to Disneyland if you go to Africa with the Jeffreys first. And so the girls said yes. Lillian, the mother and and the father, Dick, said, we want them to have that experience. And it was an enormous experience for my wife and I. It was monumental. That's an experience I hope I can recapture with uh, some film footage and certainly pictures. But the story of these young babies meeting us first in San Jose, and they participated with the African-American part of the tour. They traveled throughout Black America, Bay Area, San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland. We were studying urban and rural America. Then we went down to Los Angeles, Watts and Compton. Then we went across Texas. Then we went on to New Orleans. Uh, Then we went to to, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, had a chance to meet our people in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, including Margaret Walker Alexander, then we went on to Tuskegee, Alabama, then on to Atlanta, up to North Carolina, on to Washington, D.C., Howard University, and then on to New York. And with that month of studying Black America, we flew to across the ocean on our way to Africa, stopping in Paris to catch the, the uh, corresponding uh, plane. While we, 35 of us, including these little babies, was standing in the airport at Paris. In Paris, we felt this breeze, this powerful breeze, this gentle, powerful breeze. It was like the whirlwind of Marcus Garvey again. Uh-huh. And who did rushed us and wanted to know who we were and wanted to hug these babies? Josephine Baker. Oh, my God. And here is this legend. And you know, Josephine Baker saw 35 black people, including two young girls. She she was going in that direction, and so she came over to us. When I mentioned to her that these were Dick Gregory's babies, she said, oh, my God, I knew them when they were little bitty ones. Oh, my goodness. And so our trip overseas, after the American part of it, uh, was anchored with meeting Josephine Baker. And as we went further on into Africa, into Guinea, into Senegal and Ivory Coast and to Ghana in the mountains of Guinea, the Republic of Guinea. We had a chance to visit the President Sekouture of Guinea, great leader, and uh, he was also at that point leader of one of our African-American, African-Caribbean uh, leaders. And then we went up into the mountains 
to meet the wife. And they had this beautiful mountain range a home. And it was a two-story thatched roof. Uh, I call it a hut. But it was a hut with five rooms, large rooms, of red carpeting. And in the midst of the mountains, I can just still see this spirit coming toward us, coming out of the mist. And the spirit I'm referring to is Miriam Makiba. Mm. And Miriam Makiba, again, when she saw the little girls inviting us in her house, she said, oh, who are these little precious ones? And we said, Dick Gregory and Lillian Gregory's kids. And she, of course, went crazy because she knew them uh, as younger uh, children. And, and Miriam at that time was married to Kwame Ture, who had changed his name from Stokely Carmichael to Kwame Ture. He took a composite of the great leader, Sekou of Guinea, great revolutionary spirit, and the great Pan-African revolutionary spirit of Ghana, Kwame uh, uh, and So that one year, 69, set us off on a great journey. And here we are, 50, almost 50 years later, still on that path, still building what we're referring now to as the African Renaissance. And so the work that uh, you and others and Brother Taki are doing to produce this great, it'll be a great screening of our history because we'll be, we'll be spanning so much of it in this new work, which will be coming out happy, H-A-P-I, which was the ancient name of the Nile Valley. And so the setting for happy for me goes back with this period in San Jose. And after three or four years there, we were called to come back to New York and we spent 40 years in New York, but it goes back to the roots. It goes back to the roots of my family that my mother and her father whose birthday I was born on, January the 19th, 1937. He was born January the 19th, 1888, in the period of Marcus Messiah Garvey. But from Virginia, eventually, uh, he, he was a Booker T. Washingtonite, along with my mother. They were farmers. And uh, Booker T. said, put your buckets down where you are, take control of your destiny, grow your own food, make your own clothes, build your own buildings, and develop a science of agriculture as well as a science of living. So that foundation coming out of the Deep South and the struggle that was Booker T. Washington was a part of my pablum. I didn't have Dick Jane and Spot and Little Red Riding Hood and Cinderella and the Seven Drawers and all that mess. I had Booker T., and the first book that my mother put in front of me that was mine. And after 40 or 50 years, I found the book. I couldn't believe it. I opened up a manila envelope, and there was the book, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington. Wow. And then part of the socialization, how you get your values, your beliefs, your role models, your patterns of behavior, uh, is what happened in your family a circumstance, and then of course it extends into the school system, and extends into the community, extends into the churches, it extends into the playground. We were all conscious political uh, 
uh, young individuals. We were conscious, social young individuals. We knew we had to be the best we could be, but we were conscious athletically. We all wanted to be ball players, not to make money, but the people who inspired us in 1946, it was Joe Lewis knocking out a, mm. a, a white man every month, a bum a month. And our spirits were lifted when this brother was doing his thing. But then at the same time in 1946, we knew following the Negro Leagues that Jackie Robinson had been taken from the Kansas City Monarchs and was signed into the Brooklyn system, the Brooklyn Dodgers system. So in 46, he went to Montreal to get his initiation. We went up to Montreal to see him. So here we are. Here I am as a 10-year-old, my brother as an 8-year-old, going, driving up with my father in his big car to see Jackie Robinson. And then, of course, when he came down to Brooklyn, we were there. So Jackie Robinson was an inspiration, not, not of making money, but of breaking the world down, making a way for others, and then doing it with class and dignity. And so uh, that's eight and 10 years old, 11 years old. That was our inspiration. Uh, it was not only in the classroom, it was on the playing fields. It was not only in the classroom and on the playing fields, it was in the streets because our people organized us into uh, uh, groups. We went to camp together and it was organized down the street in those little churches that we went to because they had to put some moral teachings in us. And so we went to these little churches and uh, there were people there to put their hands on us. So of the hundred kids I grew up with, 90 of us made it and made it big. Wow. 90. We didn't have no, one or two people might have gone to jail, but we didn't have no 40% of us going to jail or, or uh, uh, another 20% of us using drugs. And we were just working, hardworking people living on 14th Street where my mother, father, and my brother and I lived. And then my mother's family lived on 13th Street in North New Jersey. My father's family lived on 12th Street. So we had, even the white folks lived among us, we had an African village working for us. And so I am what I am because I had a chance to try to be something with the other young people I grew up with in this African village settings. So you had multiple mothers and multiple fathers. My mother, for the first five years, she said she didn't work because she wanted to make sure we got a good grounding. And she gave it to us. And then she worked. But most of the money that she made went to, for her older sister, who lived right next to the factory where she worked, and she was our second mother. So we had our primary birth mother. We had my mother's oldest sister, who was our second mother. She had a beautiful uh, older daughter who gave us a third mothering. And so it's this multiple mothers and multiple fathers that go to make you. How can, you can't be what you need to be, and the family is broken up. The mother's waiting for a welfare check. There's no men around. There's no grandfathers. There's no uncles. Yeah, we even had uncles that weren't even blood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there was Uncle So-and-so and Aunt So-and-so. And so the Africans are growing up, the strength of the generations that grew up around me over those last 50, 60 years, they had an Af improvised African formulation for growth and development. It was African-American, African-Caribbean. And, uh, and it was, it produced us. We didn't have all of those problems with drugs and, and uh, uh, lack of family support and, and whatnot. So um, that's why it's important for us not to look at the achievements of us, uh, 
but look at from whence we came. I was dealing with the Nile Valley happy. I was dealing with the Nile Valley happy when I was 10 and 11 years old. So you would say, Dr. J, what kind of mess are you talking about? How could you be dealing with Nile Valley when you were 10 or 11 years old? Well, I, I have, and it'll be, um, I need to make copies of it. I have my work that I did in the sixth grade. And the first term paper I did, handwritten 20 pages, was on Egypt. And on the cover, since I had no artist ability, I designed the cover with the three pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx in between. And and handwritten, and I, I got the material out of my own um, sources. I said, Dr. J, what are you talking about? And so as I tell the story about the African socialization, my brother and I and the others got um, I'm calling this chapter, Where's the Funk? <laughs> and, and people are going to say, well, what the hell is Dr. Jeffrey talking about? When you open it up, I'm talking about the funk and Wagner encyclopedias mm-hmm. that my mother bought. I remember that and, story well. And put in our living room. And so as a result, I didn't even have to go to the library to get the information. I got them from the funk and Wagner. But that's going to be, people will say, well, First thing I did was Egypt, and I'm talking about the flood. In fact, we have to figure out some way for Brother Taki to film this work that I did. Um, And then, because it's in my consciousness, even though I went, I wanted to be a lawyer to save the race civil rights, but that African consciousness was still there. And... uh, my mother was not, and her father was not only Booker T. Washingtonite, W.E.B. Du Bois did a study of Farmville, Virginia, where my mother grew up. And while he was doing the study of Farmville, Virginia, to prepare for his great work, The Philadelphia Negro, and uh, he was studying the migration out of the South into Philadelphia. And uh, so my mother's great aunt, Pocahontas, because they were a part of the Powhatan Nation, um, Pocahontas became a secretary of Du Bois. So Booker T. Washington was a part of my growing up. W.E.B. Du Bois was a part of my growing up. And my mother's father and her were Garveyites. So my Pablo wasn't Dick Jane and Spot, Little Red Riding Hood and all that mess, Jack and the Beanstalk. My Pablo was Booker T. Put your buckets down where you are, take care of your business, self-development, uh, W.E.B., develop a talented tenth, study and become as brilliant as you can become, and Marcus Garvey, that you are a global people, and global African family is from whence you come. So, hey, so Dick just added to that when he brought his presence, because over the years, we've had a chance to interact at very important uh, activities, and the uh, the daughters never wanted to go to uh, Disneyland. And then uh, uh, one of them actually uh, completed her work at the London School of Economics. And I believe she did a PhD on uh, market women or something like of that subject in Kenya. 
so that uh, and then they became the older members of of uh, at least ten of them, the family, and you had to give Dick was out doing his worldly work and uh, and Lillian has to be complimented for helping to manage his professional career and his programming and uh, whatnot, lecturing, and then allowing him to have full participation when he could in raising of the kids. But Lillian, his partner for life, has to be seen as the great African mother and grandmother and auntie, that, that rock in our tradition that is built around the female principle. And so here you had this, this great marathon runner, uh, Dick Gregory, going around the world doing all the things he could do uh, to raise us up, including running for the President of the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so while we were at San Jose, we had a chance to deal with two uh, African peoples running for uh, the president. Uh, Dick ran in the 68 uh, elections. And then you had um, Shirley Chisholm from Brooklyn. We actually raised money for Shirley when she came out on the West Coast. And we had a big reception for her at our house and uh, in San Jose. So what I'm saying is, you can look at the negative side because there's always a negative side. And you can look at the difficulties. There's always difficulties because with the dehumanization that we've been uh, been processed in, it's amazing we've been able to do what we have been able to do. But if you reflect back, if you reflect back on this African history, this Nile Valley history, going back thousands of years, uh, then you see that we have it within us. It's a question of the consciousness and the ability to understand and the ability to throw off whatever obstacles are in our way and and proceed. And, and right now we're in a rise. We're in a renaissance. Change, transformation, rebirth of African peoples are taking place as we speak. Well, you went through that uh, very uh, publicly uh, when you were... Um, uh, you were in charge of, uh, you, well, you were the head of the Jewish uh, fraternity for, for uh, a number of years. And uh, something happened. I want you to tell the story. Um, you were quoted in, in Time magazine uh, saying, whites are pathological, dirty, dastardly, devilish folk. And uh, when I read that, um, there were no red flags that popped up for me. I said, okay, so what is the problem? Uh, but you went through uh, ACWL and then some, and I remember in our first conversation, you said there could not have been a better person uh, that was more ready than myself, talking of you, of, of you, to go through that experience. What happened that transpired where uh, this, this Jewish phenomenon, there was such a backlash and uh, you were labeled an anti-Semite uh, per excellence? What, what was that story? What happened then? Well, not uh, just labeled an anti. They compared me to Hitler. I'm the new Hitler. Oh my and, God! Uh, okay. uh, yes, and uh, so that uh, at the time that we were waging our our struggle for the African truth, uh, everybody who had a stake in white supremacy, including black folk, opposed us. And oh. uh, but this truth had to be pursued. And so we had no intention. 
not the slightest of not continuing with our struggle. And the struggle was purposely uh, designed to try to make it seem like it's an anti-Semitic struggle. Mm-hmm. And that component of it was the dastardly plan. In other words, they met in the suites and in the boardrooms and they came up with this, how can we stop these black people that are rising and black people that are throwing off this yoke of inferiority that we put on them and and standing up in the sublime light of their great humanity that they are the human family and that they brought forth from their mind and uh, spirit the, the high arts and the culture and the science and whatnot. And once we knew that, uh, we wore that very comfortably. But then the question was, in the history books and in the theaters and in the movies, was all of this negativity. So we said, uh, that needs to be changed. And they had a committee in New York State to evaluate the curriculum. And they asked me, because of my knowledge and experience, developing the largest black studies program and most comprehensive black studies program in the world uh, for all those years. Uh, this is 91, so I started uh, in 69 in this area, but I started developing this African knowledge and expertise in 61. So you're talking, I had 30 uh, fantastic years of dealing with this. So in 91, when I uh, made the Albany speech, uh, celebrating our uh, attempt to put the truth in the curriculum for everybody because I was in charge of this task force. And we had um, a Latino a scholar, Dr. Frecciselli Rodriguez. We had an Asian scholar, scholar Dr. Shirley Hyun. We had a Native American scholar, Professor uh, Jefferson, I believe it was. And then you had Dr. Len Jeffries, who was in charge of the whole crew. And uh, we studied the curriculum of the state of New York, 200 plus documents and um, uh, and t- training manuals and whatnot. And we concluded that the curriculum that everybody was being educated under, no matter who they were, was a curriculum of of white supremacy. And what we and it was a curriculum of exclusion. And what we needed was a curriculum of inclusion including the African component, the African-American component, the Latino component, the Native American component, the Asian component. And then you really had a a history worthy of uh, the education that you were trying to give uh, the youngsters. Well, when it became clear that the Nile Valley was going to be a part of this, and that in the Nile Valley, African peoples had for thousands of years laid down the foundations for culture and civilization. And then it passed on to the early Hebrews and then uh, later passed on to the Greeks and then the Romans and uh, eventually the Christians. Um, When it was clear that the true history of the world was in our grasp and we're saying, let's make that the education of everybody, then that's when the powers that be, not just Jewish folks, the powers that be said, we got to stop it. Oh. We we can't let this happen. And so 
the biggest attack in the history of the world on a little humble professor like myself occurred. And there were almost a million hits. I think at the time I was still teaching, uh, before I retired, there was 949,000. In other words, almost a million hits on the internet on me, and most of it, I was the worst person in the world. Oh. But fortunately, I know who I am. The people I work with and love know who I am. The people who raised me know who I am. And the people, white folks, and some of them Jews, know who I am. So there was no way I could be defined in the negative. So this, was a, this was a destruction of character uh, and a character assassination attempt. On, it was, it was unbelievable. Anybody who mentioned the Jeffrey's name might lose his job or her job. Wow. My wife lost a couple of jobs. Uh, uh, how does how does that impact her watching you go through this and 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 it was nothing that she could really do. How did that impact Rosalind? Well, she did she did the best thing that she could do, which was stand by my side mm. and see because she knew this African truth because she went to Africa before I did, and uh, while I was in Columbia University getting the first master's in African studies and then working on my PhD. She was a junior high school teacher trying to figure out how to use her African experience in the classroom. So she wasn't outside of the struggle. She was in the struggle. And the person who introduced her to it was a Reverend James H. Robinson. Uh, who graduated from Columbia University and uh, Union Theological Seminary. Uh, but he was from Tennessee, and he had a base in Harlem. And he was a friend of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, who became the president of Ghana. They went to school together in Lincoln. So when Nkrumah's independence of, of Ghana took place in 57, and Nkrumah um, invited him to help Ghana. So he came up with this idea of setting up a work camp program of bringing young white and black Americans and Canadians to Africa to work with Africans and building schools and clinics and nurseries and other things like that. So he uh, managed to achieve this linkage. And my wife uh, was a part of his church. She used to go to the summer programs they had. And then when he put in the African program in 1960, she went. I was in Europe at that time. I didn't know my wife then. In 61, when I came back and I heard him, I said, I want to go on that program when he lectured. And so I went on that program in 61. And then when I came back, that's when I met my wife. And a number of us that had this African experience became very close. And so 62, 63, and 64, within a period of six months, about eight of us got married every Two weeks, there was a, a, a marriage of these uh, young men and women that had this African experience and wanted to continue to make a contribution. Okay. So I'm saying that the strength and understanding that I had in reference to Africa and the beauty about Africa, she was the pioneer. She went before I did. And so uh, when we got married, we were proud to have the wedding in Harlem at the Church of the Master. But then we brought 200 people, white and black, up to Columbia University for probably one of the biggest black things they, they had at Columbia in terms of a black crowd. And that was our, our wedding reception. 
So that uh, fortunately, to have a partner who understands what the struggle is, who has made her own contribution to it, mm-hmm. and who knows that you have to stand together. And so when the big attack came, um, she was right there. In other words, when I told her, I called New York and the things, what had happened was, they said, if this Jeffries and these people he's working with are successful in putting the world curriculum uh, in New York State, it will spread to the United States and then it'll be part of the world. So they actually met and said, we have to block it. The way to block it was to create the biggest storm and stink around this Leonard Jeffries and his hate of white folks and hate of Jews and hate of, uh, and uh, uh, you know, just he's just the new Hitler. And wow. so wow. they actually, they helped me in the struggle because they overdid it. Yeah. Well, they, 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 they made it to prove what you call them. They, they, they confirmed it. Right? That's right. So wherever, wherever <laughs> I went. Whites are pathological. I love that because that's exactly the conclusion I have come to in my 52 years, that they're dirty, dastardly, devilish folks. That's um, right. that's please right. tell me what the problem is. I, I right. mean, I can see yes. that. There's see, too much evidence. There's too much evidence. Right. And see, I had studied their history. <laughs> see, that's the beauty of, of having... Uh, been educated with the white youngsters. There were a few of us blacks in with the white youngsters. So we studied their history. So we know who the Greeks were and what they did. And we know who, who the Romans were and what they did. And we know, so it's not just a Hitler situation. Death, dominate, I describe European culture as domination, destruction, and death. Mm. And so out of that, we've had this World War One and World War Two and the Hundred Years' War, the first 100 years' war between England and uh, and France. And then there's the second 100 years' war between uh, England and France. In other words, and when you learn European history, you don't learn it in terms of development of cultural civilization. You learn it in terms of war, hundreds of years of war, the 30 years' war, the seven years' war. <laughs> and so... Uh, you can look at European history in terms of domination, destruction, and death. They meet the Native Americans, they come across the ocean, and it wasn't any uh, a discovery. It was a, a chance to super exploit the Native Americans, and so genocide was the result of Christopher Columbus. Not a He was lost. He didn't know where he was. And then when he saw the people over here and they welcomed him, he he wrote in his diary that these people are, 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 can be taken down. They They are friendly, et cetera. And so the genocide of the Native Americans was responsible. Christopher Columbus was the first wave of these Europeans that came. And then when they needed a strong people to work this land, the Native Americans were dying out because of diseases and whatnot. They uh, came up with the formula of using their own people and their own people couldn't work and handle it. So then they said, we had to go to the real people. And so they went and brought African people over. So um, we're, we're talking about the system, their system of domination, destruction, and death. And when they have a great person coming out of their system and he's trying to bring some light to that system, they raise them up. And, and many of the so-called religious leaders are in that vein or are great political leaders. But the system is domination, destruction, and death. Now, the, the system of peoples of color, Africans, Southern Asians, and Native Americans, 
that system of growth and development can be characterized as the three C's, not the three D's. And that the three C's would be communal, learning to live together, cooperative, learning to work together, and collective, learning to share. And so no matter where you look at African history from millions of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago or 50,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, their cultures are characterized by living together, working together, and sharing. So I was able to compare and contrast that because the up, Jeff, Dr. Jeff does it in his great book. He talked about the northern cradle, the cradle of the caves and the, and the cradle of, of a deprived environment that, that you put a premium on on stealing and, and, and dominating, and the cradle of the south, the river valleys, where you put the premium on blending with the laws of nature and producing a harvest uh, that can be shared by working together, working the land, irrigating the land, et cetera. So the environment of the north, as opposed to the environment of the south, one produced civilization, that's what the upper saying, and the other produced barbarism. And so that interesting dialogue was picked up uh, by myself and others by reading our great uh, scholars. And, and many of them uh, included the European analysis on things. So well, the important lesson from all of this, don't let anybody define you. Make sure you have a definition of yourself and make sure you understand systems. And I realized that it wasn't all Europeans, or because I had many friends that were were white. I mean, I grew up in a, a community that was mixed, and we had Irish, Italians, Jews, and whatnot. We all went to school. But the black component of that had a togetherness that we went to camp together. We had our baseball game. We lived together. We shared. We ate together. And so in spite of the fact that we were integrated, we had an African component. We went down to the church together. They went to their churches and we went down to our churches and there were people to take care of us, us in those churches. And then we went to camp. We went to a, a black camp in the summer. So our people gave us that extra. So I grew up with white folks. So for them to try to make me out to be anti-white and anti-Jewish, it couldn't stick uh, because I was the president of the grammar school. It was only five or six of us blacks and, and 50 whites. I was the president of the ground school. When I went to high school, I was one of the leaders, president of the, of the home, uh, home room 99 in the high school. It was a largely Italian high school and with some Irish in it. And I was played baseball, played saxophone in the jazz band, uh, was the editor of the sports editor of the yearbook, designed the cover of the yearbook. It was one of the top 10. And they had six, uh, the mayor of Newark, the Carlin Prize, I won that. So here was an athlete, a scholar, a brother who was committed to work with others. Uh, and so they couldn't make me out to be this anti-white, uh, but I understood, especially when I went to Europe, the system that had been put, that systems analysis becomes key. And then in order for in the positive way, systems are necessary in terms of economics, first principle of the universe, that's your productive, creative capability and everything, every living thing, everything that you're trying to build has to have a creative, productive capability. And then in order for it to be what it should be, it needs a management 
administrative capability, that's politics. So economics and politics is the foundation of all things, whether you're talking about the cells of your body or the organs of your body or the universe um, or planet Earth. You've got to have that economic and political foundation, your creative, productive capability intact. And then at the top of the, the triangle of shape uh, I use to explain these things, at the top, the apex, is culture. And culture, the values, the deep thoughts and ideas, culture is not just shaking your booty, jumping up and down, pounding on a drum. It's the deep thoughts about the universe and about life and about the mysteries. And so culture tells you who to, what type of economics to develop and who to do your politics with. So that triangle, economics, politics, and culture, helped me understand systems. And, uh, and that's why you're with, the best person chosen to be a part of Poppy the film because that's Poppy. And and that's right. And that happy f- film that we're putting out will allow people to see that the success of the River Valley cultures comes because that environment allows for a systemic a process of, of working together economically, uh, managing a large uh, agricultural projects, if you will, irrigation, and then knowing that that regularity of the flood uh, produces a relationship to the universe. So outside of yourself, outside of the nations that you are in, outside of the environment that you're in, there's a greater force. There's a force, there's a mystery. And of course, we don't know what the mystery is, so we describe describe it in various ways as God or as uh, the devil or as this and that. But Africans understood along the river valleys that you have to harmonize with the universe and there would be the benefits from you. And so compare the civilization, civilizing culture of the river valleys, happy being a premier one, but of course the Niger River in West Africa, another one, and the Zim, uh, Limpopo and the, uh, uh, the rivers of the south are also. And then in the so-called Middle East, you have the Tigris, Euphrates, and in India, you have the Indus Valley and the Ganges Valley. China, you have the Yellow River and the Yonki River. So River Valley civilization as opposed to the cave civilization or culture or survival. And so in in the cave, you don't have any communal cooperative working. If, If Mother, Mama Bear in the back of the cave wakes up and y'all is in the cave, you better get your, your human butts out of there as soon as you can and, and take your club and, and run over to the next cave and you, you knocking on the door, you ain't knocking on the door, say, I, I need, we need some shelter. You coming over there with your club and you, you ain't coming with club uh, caveman uh, friendship. You coming in caveman aggressiveness to take, uh, take that cave. And so, mm-hmm. so the civilization and barbarism duality that Sheikh Antijep lays out in his work fits. The northern cradle is the cradle of survival. The southern cradle is the cradle of development. And surviving is the three Ds, domination, destruction, and death. And development is the three Cs, communal, cooperative, and collective uh, spiritual value system. So like material as well as spiritual vices, but the spiritual dominates the material. The greatest building in the history of the world would be the great pyramids of Giza, but they represent the domination of spirit over material because 
they were built in the majesty of of the design and built by the over decades of years and built by uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people because your work on this attempt to reach into the heavens and, and link up with the unseen uh, forces uh, would ensure you a place. And so they didn't need slaves to build anything. Uh, the people had a communal cooperative collective society that building um, in a sacred way meant that you carve out a special place in the afterlife for eternity for yourself. Mm-hmm. So we have to lay this business out. Now, what happened in reference to the attempt to use uh, anti-Semitism to cause confusion and chaos, it, it backfired because nobody was better prepared to handle uh, this unscrupulous attack, this dastardly attack on myself. And in fact, when I was in college, I was the president of the Jewish fraternity. When I walked into the college, uh, people thought that there was a scholar athlete myself, uh, because when you first come into the college at Lafayette College, they have a two-week process where you come before the college opens up and the fraternities rush you so because they didn't have enough room in the dormitories or enough for sleeping or eating so they had this pre-college entry uh, process and so I was playing basketball uh, in the gym and uh, people thought maybe uh, there's this young black there were only two blacks in the college when I got there so (laughs) we people had uh, and we doubled the black population to the four. And I went to the college because one of the buddies I grew up with uh, in Newark, New Jersey, and, and played baseball with and uh, went to school with uh, Sonny Green. He was one of the students at Lafayette. But uh, what happened was uh, the Jewish fraternity rushed me and they said, We're not rushing you. We want you in our fraternity uh, because you're black. We have black people in the fraternity. And in Los Angeles at UCLA, uh, we have a black person in our fraternity who's, uh, who, who happened to be <laughs> uh, happened to be one of the leading athletes in the world, and uh, so we went, you know, uh, and then they had in Syracuse, they were pledging Jimmy Brown, and he turned out to be one of the leading football players in the NFL. NFL mm-hmm. and the and the person in Los Angeles at UCLA who was the Olympic and it was uh, uh, Rafe, uh, uh, goodness he was well, you had from New Jersey you had Les Campbell he was an Olympian and you had uh, uh, um, our brother Lewis but out in uh, in Los Angeles, you had uh, oh goodness, his name is not coming to me. But he was a uh, an Olympian. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that they thought they had an athlete scholar, and mm-hmm. so I be- I became one of the leaders of the freshman class. The Jewish fraternity put me up to run, and I, I won the secretary of the class. I was the leader of the sophomore class. I was vice president of the Jewish fraternity. And my junior and my senior year, I was president of the Jewish fraternity, and the president of the Jewish fraternity was called a Rex. 
and the Rex in Latin means the king. So I used to joke that I, I had it rough in college. I had to go through college as the Rex, uh, the king of the Jews. And people said, oh, he's so anti-Semitic. Oh, he, so, wow. so when they wanted to try to, to nail me down and, and uh, put this anti-Semitic pin uh, on me, Rayford Johnson, the the the, uh, the Olympian uh, in Los Angeles was Rayford Johnson. He was one of the great Olympians at the time. But what happened was they went to try to find some of my fraternity brothers. And so they found a couple of them, and then one of them was Dr. Michael Moscow. And uh, they asked him, was he as anti-Semitic then as he is now? And uh, what do you think about him? So, uh, Dr. Moscow said, uh, Mike said, um, he was our leader. He was one of the best of us. Mm. And they said, what? And they said, yes, he was our leader. He was one of the best of us. And um, and Mike said, I, I'm from New Jersey. I was very close to him. And Mike was from Patterson, New Jersey. But the importance of Mike was he had been he became an economist, and he was 22 years the head of the Chicago Federal Reserve, mm. along with Greenspan. Mm. So once they got that type of response, they said, we, we're not going to ask anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, because instead of having Jeffries being tagged an anti-Semite, here he was working with Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the way it was. Same thing at City College. I worked with those, some of the Jews. I like, remember a story that Professor Kabahiawatha Kamene, uh, of course, you remember him as Booker T. Coleman. I remember him. Yes. That he no, we're still very close. We're very yeah. close. And I remember him saying, you you, know, you would call up and say, it's the boogeyman. You would call his house. Uh, Sherry would answer the phone or something. And, uh, and, and I remember him telling a story about, uh, I guess it was at an airport. He was uh, a plane was late, or the plane couldn't board the plane because there was a protest that was outside that had shut down the airport. And come to find out, it was you. It was it was because of the protesting a, a, against you that actually uh, uh, altered uh, uh, air, airport traffic. So this no, is not no a, no a no. Thing. Let's let's clear that one up because it's okay. important. It, it's just it's just the opposite. In other words. When I called home, I was in Ghana when the big attack came in August okay. of 91. In, 90, in July 91, I made the famous speech in Albany to say, look, this is what we're all about. We're about the truth, and we're, we're not about slave owners, and we're not about people who are killing us. We're, uh, there's a whole other history of it. And so I was contrasting the history of the founding father's slave master bastards, as I call them affectionately, Jefferson, Washington, Monroe, and Madison, and all the rest of them, uh, I said, it's not about, it's searching for this enormous truth. And so uh, our great scholars have been doing that. And I said, that's what I'm all about. So that was the Albany speech. And so they took that Albany speech, which is one of the greatest speeches since the Gettysburg Address, and they cut it up and took pieces and bits and pieces out to make me seem the worst anti-Semite in the world. And they try to make it stick. And that's why I say, I'm glad they threw it at me because it wasn't going to stick. And uh, even though I may have had some uh, negative things to say about certain Jewish leaders, that doesn't apply to all Jews. 
And when I mentioned that Jews were involved in slavery, just like everybody else, we have the documentation. I have 53 books on uh, the Jewish involvement in slavery. Did you hear what I said? 53 wow. books, most of them written by Jews themselves. So it wasn't a question. It's, it wasn't in our interest to raise slavery around Jews because we wanted to put it on all of these Europeans. We wanted to put it first and foremost on the Pope who divided up the world in 1493, gave half of it to Spain and half of it to Portugal. And and the papal bulls of, of 1444 and 1477 and 1482, the papal bulls of 1493 that allowed the popes giving these so-called Christian conquistadors the right to enslave of the so-called infidels and take their land. So if we, it's not in our interest to put slavery on the Jews. They participated just like the Dutch participated, the Danes, the Germans, the Brandenburg Germans, the King of and Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth the first was one of the first of the English and and slavers, and she had her sea dogs, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and and John Hawkins and whatnot. Uh, to try to rip off the slave system from the Spanish. So uh, nobody is deeper into this history than myself. And I was in it before I met Alex Haley. Once I met Alex Haley in those seven years, I had to get fully into it. So it was not in our interest. It's not in our interest to pin this type of devilishment all around the world on the Jewish population. We want to spread it all over white folks. Uh And anybody who gets into it, including black folks or Arabs or Chinese, they they become honorary whites and they co- and commit the same type of genocide against African peoples. Oh, but oh, oh. systems analysis meant that I had to point to the various groups and why they were doing it for economic purposes and how were they controlling it by putting in a political machinery. So the slave companies that were set up by the Dutch that invited the Jews to be a part of it that went to the Danes and put it up for the Danes and set up a slave company for the Swedes and then and finally set up a slave company for the English. And eventually the same uh, process went to the Germans. So, I mean, we, I have all the dates and all the information of when they put these institutions in place and who was involved. It has never been our interest dependent on one group. We want to show that it's a system. And once you get in the system, even Africans, once they got in the system, they wound up, uh, being uh, 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 predators and, mm-hmm. and, and enslavers. And so instead of them seeing the larger analysis, they said, we want to block this uh, brother, this terrible person from putting all this information out there and into the history books. And one of the pre- reasons why the Jewish community was particularly sensitive was because we knew we never raised it went around the world waving flags and banners about it, that we knew that the ancient Hebrew process from Abraham or in Chaldea, by some people's timetable, 1800 BC, and the coming of this remnant into this great civilization and culture uh, called the Nile Valley, we knew that there's no way in hell if anybody had any knowledge of any of it, that the Jews could be, the ancient Hebrews, so-called Jews, could be involved in building pyramids in the Nile Valley of baked mud and straw. Mm-hmm. And when and when the uh, mayor of New York, uh, the former mayor of New York, wanted to get a hold of me so he could try to beat me up, 
I told him, I said, well, you need to come up here. I got the books up in the library at the college. He said, oh, no, I would, couldn't come up there. To, it would be a media event. Well, I said, well, uh, I don't think I can come down to your office because I can't bring all these books down here. And I said, in fact, I don't think I want to meet you anyway because I got a picture of you on a camel riding around the pyramids claiming that your ancestors built them thousands of years ago. I have another picture of Menachem Begin at the time of the peace accords with Egypt, with Menachem Begin standing in front of the pyramids with the headlines in the New York paper saying, standing in front of the uh, uh, pyramids his ancestors built thousands of times years ago. I said, I want my damn pyramids back. <laughs> and he said, what? He said, well, what? I said, yes, I want my pyramids back. I said, there's no pyramids in in uh and the Giza Plateau made of, of baked mud and straw. They're all hewn out of living rock granite with limestone covering. And so, and then we hung up. Wow. And then he had to go to Hong Kong or Honolulu. He called up two days later and he said, you can have your pyramids back. Let's meet. Now, once I put that on him, he said, I got me a doozy here. This Negro is crazy. I got to meet him. I got to put the last nail in his coffin. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what he wanted to do. And so when he said he wanted to meet, we made up the date, May the 16th, 1990, a couple of days before Malcolm's birthday celebration, Malcolm X's birthday celebration. And so my brother and I went down to his office I had a big box of books and he rolled in a big box of books. And we took those books in the office of Mayor Koch and gave him the whipping of his life. We have wow. it on tape. We have it on tape. We have the transcript. And after a while, I beat him up so bad that before we got started, I said, before we get started, Mr. Mayor, we're gonna to have to deal with that little statue on your desk. He said, what do you mean? I said, that statue, the so-called Statue of Liberty. I said, do you know about it? He said, of course, it's standing in the harbor welcoming the immigrants. I said, no, the real story of the Statue of Liberty has to do with my ancestors who fought for freedom in America during the slave period has not a damn thing to do with immigrants. Mm. He said, oh my God. He said, I got me a doozy here. So he went out of the room, brought two tape recorders, and he brought in his senior partner, Dan Wolf. And so he had a witness and I had my brother for a witness. And we have it on tape. Where can we get that? I, I have it. I have it. I'm looking oh, right at it. I have it. Oh, I'm looking God. right at it now. We oh, have it on God. tape. And so... Um, Lucky, if you're listening, you need to get that tape, brother, and, and make that happen. <laughs> no. once, once, we, <laughs> once we put the, put the thing out, there'll be, you know... And and what happened was I was beating him up so badly because I said, here's the books written by Jewish scholars. Here's the book on slavery. Here's the book on this and that. And so uh, the Jews of Birmingham, the Jews of Charleston, the Jews of Mobile, Alabama, the Jews in Brazil, uh, the Jews in Amsterdam. And I have a five uh, brother who, uh, his name was Israel, Jonathan Israel. He's written five books on the Jewish involvement in slavery. So once he saw this information, he said, I, I, I'm sorry, but I got to go. Now, here he is begging me to come down. Uh -huh. And now he got uh -huh. to go because his uh -huh. beating was getting to him. Uh -huh. so it was overwhelming. I, I stayed another 40 minutes kicking him in the butt. 
<laughs> his partner, Dan Wolf, later told me he said he had never seen Koch so properly handled. That's his partner now. Wow. So he gave, he said, one copy of this tape, when he put it on the desk, is for you and one is for me. I have a letter from him. When I when we said we wanted to publish this uh, our, our meeting, he says, I don't know anything about any tape. I don't know anything. Any meetings we had was a private meeting. He had taped it because he wanted to make sure he got my word. So when he beat me up like hell, he would be able to show how stupid I was. Once he saw who I was, he said, oh, shit. You know, and, uh, and, 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 and so he said, I got to go. I got to go. I couldn't oh, I stop. Love it. I was on a roll. I had to take him. And, and that was, uh, we had that May uh, 1990. And then when the thing that uh, Brother Copper was talking about was when the big attack came, I was in Africa with my wife and a group that we had taken. Mm-hmm. And when I found out what was going on, I, I, Professor Small told me, I said, look, I still got 10 more days in my trip. I ain't worried about coming back to Africa. You all take care of business and uh, coming back from Africa. You all take care of business until I get back. So, and later my brother told me, he said, when you don't know what's happening here, when you come back, we will be taking over your life for 72 hours. So I said, that's great. I mean, to have a brother that strong and my partner, Brother Small, that's going to, going to take over my life. I said, good. And so when Rosalind, that's when we first heard about her, I told my wife what was happening that I'm being attacked. Now that wasn't nothing new. They had started attacking in 1989. Uh, when they knew that we were, we were talking about putting this truth in the curriculum, the attacks were happening then. Mm-hmm. But once the Board of Regents passed it and said we need to put it in the curriculum then they had to create such a big stir to frighten everybody away from this truth because you had to deal with the african origin of humankind the african evolution of society the african cradle civilization in the Nile valley and so that that's the big problem that no the white folks just can't handle that in other words they've taken history so in the wrong direction that the Greeks produced history and culture and civilization. The ancient Greeks sat at the feet of the Africans and the ancient Greeks acknowledged what the Africans gave them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the ancient Hebrews, they didn't go into Asia, they went into Africa. And that's how they got the traditions that become what they call Judaism. Mm-hmm. But you can't have that as, you can't change that. And they're not gonna change it. No matter what truth we come up with, what scientific historical information, they're still going to accept white folks as the chosen people and black people as subhumans. And so the joke is on them. It's not on us. Let me ask you something. You mentioned uh, our, our ancestor, uh, 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 Dr. Francis Cress Welkin. How did her work um, either influence you or did it add to more confirmation uh, of the work you've, you had already uh, uh, achieved the research by that time. Well, that's one of the yeah, most yeah, that's one of the most important things that uh, our relationship uh, was all about. She, I had this enormous African experience. Very few people have it. I, I've been to Africa forty or fifty times. Lived there for several years. Wow. Um, she knew the importance of Africa, but her work was concentrating based upon her, her partner mentor. 
Neely Fuller that she wanted people to have a systems analysis. And so she worked on that in the most heavy way and saying the systems analysis was, um, we're, we're in the European system. And we're not even, we don't have a serious ball game in the African, on the African side of the chessboard. That was one of her great things. And she was right. We're, we're still, and we can't think outside of the European system. We're still in trouble in terms of that. And she, that was one of her key things. Fortunately, as time went on, she became more interested in the African thing, but she never got immersed in it the way one of her, her partners, Dr. Segment, uh, uh, she actually has been made a queen mother in, 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 in Ghana where we are, and she's got heavily into, uh, into the knowledge. And so, uh, but Frances Crest Welting, she had her important contribution about systems and the systems analysis. And so her work complements uh, mine and I compliment her. Another professor who, uh, outside of Shekanta Diop and his partners like Dr. Theophila Banga, uh, but Lerone Bennett, uh, Professor Lerone Bennett, he, he was into systems analysis and using African-American history. So of course, uh, one of his most important books is Before the Mayflower. Uh-huh. And that and that was before 1620 uh, uh, Europeans coming into Massachusetts. You had 16, uh, 20 Europeans in uh, 1619 being brought into Virginia, and that saved the Virginia uh, colony. And then he had another book, The Shaping of Black America, when he talks about one chapter is the road not taken. Another chapter is black and white. And what, another chapter is black and red meaning talking about the Native Americans, the black founding fathers. So Lerone Bennett's book, Shaping the Black America, helped me change my teaching for the better. So that's the the beauty of of, um, having all these partners, like the young brother Kaba. I met him when he was uh, teaching in the Bronx and uh, in District 9, and they were trying to put in an African component to the education. So whenever we try to do it, they, they don't want this truth to be there because they want to keep this concept that the Europeans are superior to Africans and they can't accept the biogenetics that they come out of our African gene pool mm-hmm. and the values and culture of their civilization, including even the concept of the divine uh, come out of our experience. And so we just have to stay and pursue that truth. But to clarify uh, what you mentioned before in reference to Brother Kaba, uh, when um, they, uh, Brother Smalls, I told him I'm not coming back uh, for another 10 days. Immediately when I told my wife what was happening, she formed a prayer circle. Mm. We went into the room of one of our room of one of our uh, uh, people traveling uh, persons who was ill. So we got around formed a circle around her bed and Rosalind took over. And she said, we're, we're, we're doing the, the work of God. We're not going backwards. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to uh, bend. We're not going to uh, apologize. Apollo Jesse Jackson, we ain't going to apologize. We have nothing to apologize for. And so when, you're, when your partner knows that your world is being shaken to the ground, uh-huh. And she doesn't go into a fear mode or a crying mode or what are we going to do mode. 
and she steps up and puts a prayer circle in it, Absolutely. calling upon the ancestors and the creator to be with us, then what are you going to do? You you can't run and hide in the closet. So uh, what I did was right after we left her, uh, this young lady that was sick, we went to see the chief priestess of the Ashanti uh, kingdom. And uh, she uh, leads the way with the ceremonies and, and the spirituality of the Ashanti in central Ghana. And uh, the golden stool can't go forth without her fly with removing the evil spirits and the king carried in the paraplane going forth and the queen mother. And so this spiritual leader of Ashanti, when we went to see her, she usually gives you one ring of protection. But when she understood what was happening with me, she gave me seven rings of protection. I have them on to this day. That's 91 to now. And so knowing that a person like that is able to read your spirit and come forth and stand with you and stand over you and stand under you. When we went back home, we were prepared. Uh And so my brother had said, be prepared. He said, 72 days, hours, we're going to take control. So people, thousands of people were there at the airport supporting me. There was there were thirty uh, Jewish young people uh, with protests. Jeffries is a pig, and this and the new Hitler, and all of that. That when the people at the airport found out what the what the struggle was, other people who who weren't even friends of mine they supported us. Now when we landed, the Africans so anxious to get to America jump up and they start taking their bags off the rack. And the plane hasn't started. And so the people, uh, the air people said, uh, please sit down. And then people didn't want, still want to sit down. So they had to tell people, no one is getting off the plane until the Jeffries get off the plane. Wow. So they came on the plane. They sat everybody down. And then they got us. And they took us to the front of the plane. And we did not go into the airport. They took us down on the on the on the ground and okay. uh, right on the tarmac and brother Ozzy who takes care of the security at the uh, Apollo he yelled out don't worry about your baggage uh, uh, Dr. Jeffries we got that covered and then when we got down on the tarmac it was like 707 uh, there was a whole line of cars with a Mercedes uh, leading the way, and I was put in the Mercedes. And my brother uh, grabbed my head, and you know how, like the police do, and put your head in in the uh-huh. car. <laughs> uh-huh. No, uh, a greeting, but no saying nothing. I mean, it was it was really seven oh seven. How surreal was that? And and be, it was absolutely serious. I'm looking at all these folks. Oh, it was so serious. And many of the people in in the martial arts school have have bald heads, and so there were several SUVs behind us. And in front of us was El Al Jet, the Israeli jet airline. Nobody can come near the El Al Jet. It has 24-hour protection. But contact had been made with Washington 
to allow me to come and my wife to come off the plane and get into these cars and to bring onto the airport our cars. Wow. And uh, yes, wow. Wow. All the time. And yeah, as, as we left, I did not know where I was going. My brother said, We're taking over your life for 72 hours. Oh. And they had to make a decision whether to take me up into the woods of New York and hide me out and protect me or take me to his house in Brooklyn or take me to my home in New Jersey. And so they decided they're going to take my wife and I to our home in New Jersey and they're going to protect us there. And the highway traffic was stopped on the Grand Central and the Van Wick. Oh, you hear what I said? The highway traffic was stopped on the van, on the Grand Central and the Van Wick. That came from the highest orders, the highest Absolutely. level. Absolutely. Okay. It, that, that, and then they just brought me into my house and they said, we're going to put uh, guards around your house. The sons of Africa lived in the house. There were about eight people living in the garage, in the extra bedroom, and living upstairs. Um, it was magnificent that our, our people said, this one we're going to protect. And we're going to make sure that if anything happens to him, there'll be a price to pay. It's one of the greatest stories that's happened in our history. And everywhere I went, whether it was in Brazil, whether it was in, in the Caribbean, whether it was in, in, uh, uh, in, in Africa, anywhere in Europe, uh, the support that we had was from everybody. Mm-hmm. It was magnificent. It one, it's one of the greatest stories. Now, I'm not going to tell it in detail because I don't deal with the negative, but I will deal with the, the positive. In other words, this thing of me being anti-white, anti-Semitic, all this and that, no, uh, that's out there and I, I don't have to worry about it. I am me. I'm the one who has got into an African understanding and African consciousness, and that makes me universal. And oh. so that's the emphasis. It's not going to be the negative. But the positive is that there were Jewish scholars, there were Jewish students that supported me, Jewish professors, even in the college itself, uh, the history department, right above us, uh, on the fourth floor, history was fifth floor. I have a whole stream of letters from Jewish professors that say, you're right. Oh. Jewish professors giving us books from other institutions and organizations. So uh, one Jewish great scholar, he... Uh, wrote an article and he said that he's written 11 books on the black experience. And uh, he's written a book on the black West. He's a blacks uh, a revolution and of blacks. In other words, he, and so he said, I knew that uh, uh, your statement about blacks doing this and that was correct in terms of uh, what African-American history was. And certainly in Hollywood, because we saw we see the negative in Hollywood. He said, "But I've been reading the history of the Jewish involvement in slavery, and you're right on that." Mm. So I, I told him, I said, "Look, brother, because when he first came out with the first thing supporting his people, almost killed him. They went oh. to find everything on him and run him out of the university." Wow. So I, I told him, I said, "Look, step out of the picture. We'll take care of this." you continue to write your books and make the great contribution you're making to our history. So this is the real deal. 
it is is one of the greatest stories that has ever happened. Absolutely. But but it's not uh, something that I'm going to be putting in books or putting on tape. Sure, sure. Because it's the positive thing that happened. But the support that I got across the board um, is magnificent. And then we brought a lawsuit. And you're still getting that support today. It, it is. It, 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 it is. I just I just came from the South, and we were going, um, coming back from uh, South Carolina, and in order to get to the airports now, since we're 80 years old, we, we, we request a wheelchair. So, But the, they only had one, so I told my wife to take it, and so I'm walking alongside the wheelchair. And a lot of people are there trying to go through the security, and this big powerful looking black man is taking care of business and whatnot. And he's looking at me several times. So finally he says, Dr. Jeffries, how are you doing? Mm. And welcome to Charles, uh, to uh, Charlotte uh, airport. Now, everybody had noticed him. He was setting up a, another process to go through and for him to, and they had seen me stand there with my little African outfit. So they knew I was somebody, but to see the connection, and the acknowledgement, how he was so proud mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make that statement so That's everybody true. could hear it. Three C's right there. there are the yes. Three C's once again. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this one last question, and that is in terms, of, I guess, of reconciliation. There's a lot of people saying, are there any, is there such a thing as a good white person? Because when you look at their history, well, the thing is, there ain't, ain't no good history. Well, uh, in other words, that's why I take it to systems. We don't want to focus on the persons. But if you ah. get caught up in a system that is designed to produce the negative, so there's a there's a difference. Okay. Then you've got to fight to get out of that negative. And so we are all raised in a negative system. Gotcha. We, the African system doesn't exist now. We've got to redo it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a system that puts spirit at the center. We our system is based upon materiality. So the African system is based upon the duality of the material and the spiritual, but it's centered around its basic core is the domination of the spirit over the material. Mm-hmm. So in Washington, D.C., and our brother Tony Bradley has done a fantastic job on that, and brother Enfadishi and others, you have the tallest building is the Washington so-called monument, 550 feet. But that's an African system of spiritual Resurrection and rebirth and regeneration, the victory of the spirit over the evil. But there's no recognition of that. The Europeans said, we got to make it the tallest thing. And the Africans, its height was reaching to the heavens. But that's not what the important thing was. The important thing was that it represents a spiritual, the triumph of the spirit over the material. And the material leads to the negative, greed and domination and killing and whatnot. And the spirit leads to joining the great spiritual unity of the universe. So um, it's not a question of of one white person being good or one white person being bad or one black person. It's a question of you have a choice. And the Africans clearly understood that. You have a choice to do evil and be evil but you have the mind to do right and to be right. Mm-hmm. And your actions will be weighed when you reach the end of your material existence because you will live for eternity spiritually. 
So that's why we have to deal with happy and what it represents, meaning the Nile Valley civilization and the civilization that came out of the other River Valley civilization. It's a much different civilization than the people who come out of environments that produce uh, a struggle over material things when the African spiritual civilization is to produce the environment and the that produces eternal life, materially and spiritually. So we'll go over this. This ain't the last time we'll be able to talk. But uh, uh, to get Washington, Baltimore together, they had us. Uh, no, we we. This will be the first time. This is your first time doing it in Sacramento. How about that? And, yeah, in, <laughs> no, in California. The first time in California, even though Wade is based in Oakland and. The small has family in California, so we do um, uh, try to get to California. But yes, this, uh, the three of us, way coming out of psychology and going through his spiritual transformation with this wonderful wife he has, Dr. Vera, and then uh, uh, James Small coming out of the Malcolm tradition and the South Carolina tradition and getting into, he's the most serious person I know who's who's attempted to get into African spirituality. Uh-huh. And so, uh, and he's found and discovered many, many things that are so important. And then have myself and my wife, and and, and he has a beautiful partner uh, that's produced uh, uh, wonderful youngsters, and they've raised them together, uh, uh, Dr. Carol, and she's an MD. So uh, for the three of us to get together, it, it's, it means that we bring a combination of of strength that uh, that people need to understand and appreciate. Absolutely. So we want to tell people, let's not deal with the negative. Let's not find a particular statement of somebody and define that person. Let's not freeze Malcolm at a certain point. Let's see growth and transformation. And uh, Wade Mills has done a fantastic book on Haitian Revolution, the island of mimes, uh, M. E-M-E-S, ideas and concepts, and they go into a system of development. And so uh, so when you do, start, don't be spending your money on getting a new car and stuff like that uh, and getting a diamond ring or some gold teeth. But save some of that money so you can buy some of these books and these materials and these tapes that we have. Because we, we've got to generate money to keep our base in Africa going and that's the hotel in Ghana. So we want people to join us in that hotel and maybe even get a brick. You can buy a brick and it'll be part of the ancestral wall that we have overlooking that Atlantic Ocean, which is the biggest graveyard in the history of the world. Mm, mm, so. mm. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Doctor. All, All right. right. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Jeffries. Ladies and gentlemen uh, listening, of course, we want you to share this with as many people as you know, friends and family. And this is one where you sit back with a cup of cocoa and you listen and you take notes and then you go back and you do it again and again. And this was an amazing history lesson uh, in the life and times of this great man and the life and times of us as, as, as uh, Africans. And uh, we want to make sure that you see us and see Dr. Jeffries and Dr. Uh, Nobles and Dr. Uh, Professor Small uh, here in Sacramento, um, uh, October 27th, and uh, the description and all the information you need to uh, 
sign up and get your tickets early because this is going to sell out is at the bottom of this uh, description. And uh, we'll take care and see everybody again next time on the Sweet Matthew Show. Take care, everybody. Thanks again, Dr. Jeffrey. All right. Good night. Good night.